Welcome to Season 3 of The Lifestyle Chase, and I'm your host, Chris Little. This podcast features high performers who have found a way to live their best life while balancing their health, wellness, friends, and family. To help this podcast grow, please share it on social media, rate five stars, tell your friends, and check out the past 140 episodes and counting. You can follow me on Instagram at Christian Little and at The Lifestyle Chase. Thanks for listening. Let's get started. All right, so welcome to The Lifestyle Chase. This is the first time I've ever done a two-part episode. So this is going to be called episode 153. And I am joined once more by my buddy, Trevor Costello. And just to bring the audience up to speed, if you are just joining us now and you're missing some context, you can go back to episode 152 and get a, a bit more of the origin story. But where we left off, I was talking to Trevor a little bit about the point in his in his story and a lot of it took place around COVID but the point in which like we were talking about how you had to prepare a lot of things to be on track you you paid off a lot of your bills in advance you had a lot of pivotal support from family um what was like the whole process like to make all those preparations to kind of set yourself up for success to kind of like do the humbling st- things that you had to do. Like walk me through that if you would. Okay. So, um, when I left to rehab, there was still a few, uh, stones that had been unturned. Um, one of those in specific was my car payment. Um, so my mom had to take care of my car payment cause obviously I wasn't making any income while I was in COVID, um, being the graceful woman that she was, um, she kept track of actually, how much I owed her. So I had to take care of that debt, um, big time. Once I first got out, uh, the car payment was one of them. My car insurance was another. Um, thankfully I only had like a month or two left on my insurance. So we only had to pay that like twice. And then we just re didn't reset until I got out and was back to driving. Um, so there was at least like a three or four week turnover there where, where wasn't any insurance. And then the biggest one was actually my apartment lease, which wasn't actually supposed to come up until November. Um, but thankfully because of COVID, you know, it was just one of those things where we told the apartment, you know, it's a little bit of lie. So hopefully none of them are on this uh, podcast and checking it out and come back at me for that. Um, but my aunt is actually a real estate agent and one of my uncles is in law. So they were able to pull the claim that I was unable to make income, which wasn't a complete lie. Um, due to COVID. So we were able to pay off my last month there, uh, even though it wasn't a 60 day notice, uh, pay off my last month. Uh, again, that was something that I owed my mom once I got out of rehab. Um, so pretty much the biggest things were car insurance, car payment, and then um, my apartment lease, which we had to get undone because we didn't want to be continuing to pay that huge sum of money while I wasn't utilizing the apartment. And I didn't have anyone that would want to take it over, especially because of COVID because everyone kind of got hit financially when COVID and all the shutdowns hit uh, the country. Um, So that was kind of the first things that I needed to take care of. And for me, when I first left rehab, uh, the place they recommended to me was Kerrville, Texas, um, which is about an hour north uh, west of San Antonio. Um, It's kind of in the middle of nowhere and it's known for the three R's, um, ranching, retirement, and recovery. 
Um, a lot of people that go to rehab facilities in the Texas area actually get sent to what's known as a sober home. And for those people that don't understand what that is or haven't had a lot of experience with the process, a sober home is basically somewhere you go where you're surrounded by nine or 10 other people that also struggled with drug and alcohol addiction. And every single one of them is sober. They are pretty strict and tight on the rules. You know, you have to be home by 10 or 1030, unless obviously you have a job that keeps you out later. Some people work at restaurants or some people would just work a night shift. Uh, we had people that worked at uh, retirement homes and would help out with that. So sometimes they would pull like a midnight to 8 a.m. shift um, on occasion. So they're lenient in that sense, as long as you're out, you know, not doing drugs or drinking or with a girl or something like that. Girls aren't allowed at the house. So it kind of minimizes the distractions as much as you can. Um my mom paid my first month's rent when I was there. But once I got down there, I started working again. Um, so I was responsible for my second and third month's rent. Um, so Kerrville was a great place to kind of take those first steps into recovery for me because, you know, I was able to make a friend group and find people that were going through the same things that I was going through and not jump back into the Dallas lifestyle, um, which is what was so detrimental to me. Not like Dallas is a bad city or one of those heavy drug use and alcohol use cities. It's just that I had a lot of connections. And at any given moment, if I wanted to open up my phone, I could find a way to get my hands back on to whatever it is I wanted to get my hands on. So for me, like I said, Kerrville was a great first step. Uh, the retirement factor was huge. You know, I would go to about four or five meetings a week for Alcoholics Anonymous, um, Cocaine Anonymous, or Drug Users Anonymous, whatever it was. Um, bounced around a couple sponsors down there. I have one guy that kind of, if people are unfamiliar, there's a 12 step program. Um, there's other ways to get sober, but the 12 step program is kind of the main one that Bill Wilson started off with in like the 1930s. And they adapted that from, uh, the Oxford solution, I believe, I forget what it's called entirely, but it was like the, it was something with to do with Oxford and Cambridge, you know, some of those bigger universities had actually done studies on addiction and figured out how to get people sober and it's basically around honesty and self-reflection and they call it a spiritual program because you need to have a higher power but it's not religious in the sense that it's going to be christian based or judaism or hinduism or islam or anything like that but it kind of takes ties from all of those things so again that's when last episode i was talking about you know i've read a lot of spirituality books and about finding inner peace and finding self-actualization and that's kind of what the program is about. You know, one of the things that I can attribute a lot of my success to was what's known as the fourth and fifth step. And the fourth and fifth step is really big in that process. And I would recommend it to anyone, whether they were an addict or not. You know, if they're going through life, which everyone's obviously going through life, if they have stress factors, if they have other things that are causing them problems, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's work, I think a fourth and fifth step is very beneficial because the fourth step, what it has you do is actually you pick about five people is what they typically have you do five at a time and you'll write down their name. And on the front page, you kind of write out how they've hurt you, how they've affected you, what things they've done that have upset you and caused you problems, whether it's your boss, whether it's friend, family, like I was talking about, whether it's a significant other and you have kind of this, uh, you know, like, you know, hatred, not necessarily hatred. That's like a poor word for it, but you have some sort of resentment, resentment. That's the best word. And they actually use that word. What resentments you have towards that person. And what's really humbling is you talk about your resentments towards them. And then you flip over on the back page and on the back page, what you actually write is your selfishness and you figure out what you've done wrong to potentially hurt them. 
And so it's kind of a chicken and an egg type situation, you know, which came first. But the crazy thing is, is once you start doing this with people and writing them down and putting pen to paper, kind of like I was talking about my goals, you know, why I think it's so important to write down your goals, have a goal board, or even just pin things up on your wall and see what those goals are is you see firsthand what you've done on the inside um, to potentially hurt other people. So instead of looking externally at what others might've done to you, instead of playing the blame game and pointing your finger at everyone else, you start to see things from potentially even their perspective of what you might've done to cause them to act that way or whether they had done it first and you were causing them to continue to act that way because of how you've misbehaved or how you didn't treat them necessarily go back to the not back, but mention the golden rule, treat people how you want to be treated. And you realize that you weren't perfect in the relationship entirely on your own. So if you realize that yourself, then you get to the fifth step. The fourth step is writing it all down. The fifth step is taking someone that's usually a sponsor. And when you're in rehab, you take a sponsor and then you choose a friend, someone that's going to be brutally honest with you. Like, and I mean, brutally honest because the list that I got after my fifth step was crazy. You know, I saw my own selfishness. I saw how I was using other people to my advantage. I saw how I was, you know, treating people poorly. I expected more of others than I expected myself of myself. And that was kind of one of those huge eye-opening experiences. And they always say when you get to rehab, like you might get to rehab and feel better after a week or two because the drugs and alcohol have cleared your system. But when you do the fourth and fifth step, that's when you realize not just a lot about others, but a huge amount about yourself. And it was really humbling. Like I said, so I took uh, my counselor and I had this one guy, uh, I'll keep his name out of it, obviously, but he was a doctor and he was a brilliant man. And I think the biggest thing is I had resentments towards some people in my life. And I thought some of the people that I had resentments towards, he reminded me of those people, but he reminded me of the best version of those people. And so I took him in there because I was like, not only has this man got some age on me, you know, he was about 45, 50 and he was struggling with his own addictions, but he was a family man, had kids and everything and was a great man. I was like, you know, I had friends in rehab and some lifelong friendships, some people that I still keep in touch with every week. I'm just like on Sunday or Monday, I try to reach out and I'm like, how's everybody doing this week? Are y'all still sober? We've got a little group message with some of the younger people that were in rehab. And I'm like, y'all still sober? Y'all still killing it? How's life? Update me. And I'll kind of give him my brief update as well. Um, I do that at least once a month. I did it early on at least once a week, but you know, now I'm at the point where once a month I'll usually check in and just be like, yo, I'm doing great. Are y'all doing great? Like, I don't want to make it about me, but tell me about y'all. And, uh, so I made some friends, but I knew this guy, uh, specifically, he's still my friend and I still think very highly of him. I knew he was going to be brutally honest. And the process actually took about two or three hours to, talk and read those lists off where you talk about, you know, how other people might've affected you, who those people are. And then you talk about yourself and how you have affected them. And then in turn, how you've affected yourself by creating these problems in a sense. And so what happens during the fourth and fifth step is you're reading it to them during the fifth step and they'll stop you. They'll ask you questions. They'll get more insight because you're not going to put everything on that one piece of paper they'll get more context because context is key here um, to try and understand things. And then what they've got is their own list of paper where they're writing down your fatal flaws, basically how you've hurt yourself, how you've hurt others and what you need to fix. And then after the fifth step, you go into the sixth step of these 12 steps. And the sixth step is to take that list 
and everyone leaves the room. You find a quiet place. You can play meditation music if you want. I had no access to phones or technology, so I was just kind of quiet on my own. And you meditate for an hour. You know, you don't have to do a whole hour. You can do 10 minutes. You can do two or three hours, whatever works best with you. It's all different depending on the individual. But for rehab, especially, they would, you know, they would lock you in the room and they, you would have an hour. And I kind of read over the list for about 10 or 15 minutes. And I was just like, wow, like, as eye opening, like, I kind of knew those things, but I hadn't had the or found the ability to really tell myself those things, even though I knew them internally. So it was kind of really important to hear it from an external source that they were like, we can confirm that you're an extremely selfish individual. And here's why we believe you're a selfish individual. And it was eye opening and you can't take it personally. You just like, cause it's, it's your words. They'll write down examples. Like, because you did this, this shows that you're an angry person because you did this, this shows that you're selfish because you did this, this shows that you were really out to get this from someone and you weren't expecting anything and you weren't expecting to give anything return. And relationships are all about the give and take process as we both know, especially in training and coaching and, you know, in anything in life, like if you're an accountant, for example, like you're giving someone advice for how to handle their taxes and handle their money. And they need to give back that they're listening to you and responding to what you're giving them. And those advice, those feedback, that feedback and those advices and those tools that you're giving them to succeed. Um, so I'll kind of relate that to someone, something besides training. Cause it's obviously just a lifestyle podcast. Um, but after that fourth and step, fifth step, that was huge for me to just kind of understand, you know, what I needed to do in life, if that makes sense. And I know I kind of go off track sometimes and I rant a little bit, but, uh, yeah, that's the big process for me that helped me figure out what I needed to do. And then going to Kerrville was the best thing for me. And then when I actually moved back to Dallas, I had, was given the opportunity to go work for this company, uh, doing strength and conditioning at one of the high schools in the Dallas area. And it was only about 20 minutes from my sober home. Cause when I moved back to Dallas, I continued on in the sober home during the summer months and was able to work this job and kind of give back. And that's really what the AA program and what I was talking about with spirituality in general is it's all about giving back to the next person when you're taking from someone, when someone's giving you advice, you're taking it and then you're giving it yourselves and then hopefully they can take it and then give it themselves. So you see how the process is kind of a continuum moving from left to right or right to left or up and down, whatever way you want to see it. It's all a chain reaction of giving back to someone else. And for me, it was getting back with kids, training, giving them my experience, my understanding, my knowledge of training, nutrition, and the psychological factors that affect them. And then just being able to overall mandate that process and kind of mediate it, if that makes sense, you know, being their middle ground factor. Like obviously we know what goals we had to accomplish during the summer and we knew how to get there, but I had to tell them how to get there and make sure they were doing it and then get them to accomplish their goals. And it kind of showed me not only how I could do it for someone else again, but how I could do it for myself. And then at the end of the summer, I ended up moving back in with my mom and kind of in the middle of nowhere, limited distractions. I really love it out here. It's perfect for me. I get my gym time. I get my school time. And then on weekends, that's when I go back into the town that I was raised in. And I have some great friends out there that offer me their home and I can stay there whenever I need to. And I'll go into town on weekends. And that's when I decided I wanted to get back into training my younger athletes and my soccer players specifically. And that's kind of my target audience at the time being. Well, I mean, that's important context. I like how you kind of went through all the steps because like a lot of people think about uh, just rehab and that whole process and it's kind of unclear. Like, I mean, you opened my eyes to what that process is like and a lot of it is pretty easy to understand. Just like a little bit of introspection and reflection, just like 
taking time to sit with your thoughts is is tough it's a lot of tough effort tough work but uh it's a game changer and it's going to be a different situation for everybody but i'm sure there's a few people that would see value in like the experience that you went through um something that really stood out to me with uh your story that you shared on social media was like the moment in which like your did your brother offer to like pay for your your rehab like what how did that happen like what tell me a bit more about that um so i'd actually seen a drug counselor since i was about 15 or 16 i'd gone to him a couple times um mainly for anger management actually uh obviously his specialty is drug counseling and trying to get people sober in that sense. But my parents had kind of correlated my anger to my drug use and alcohol use. Cause as I mentioned in my story, I got busted a couple of times and I saw him for a small stint there when I was actually first getting sober, uh, when I was about 21, 22. And the problem with me then was I was like, I'm only 21 or 22. I can't be an addict. Like I wanted to get sober for a brief period of time, but the reason I wanted to get sober was to learn how to control my alcohol use and my drinking. And that's the problem is I stopped seeing him. And then when I first started using again, I thought I had it under control. You know, I was like, okay, I'm only drinking on Friday nights or, okay, I'm only drinking on Friday and Saturdays. And, you know, I smoke on like a Tuesday or Wednesday night. And then, it, you know, just like I said earlier in the last episode with my usages, it was always going to pick back up where I left off. So very quickly I got back into the daily usage. And as I mentioned in my drug story, it was, you know, it was an Adderall to wake up every day. Um, it was smoking throughout the day as soon as it was, you know, one or 2 PM and people saw it as kind of reasonable to drink. That's when I would start drinking. And then, you know, I would drink all afternoon. And when I was drinking all afternoon, it was like, how do I stay energized while I'm drinking instead of just getting myself down? And that's when cocaine became a big part of the mix where it was just like, I always had some cocaine in my pocket, or I always had some in my car where I could grab it and use it if I needed to, whether it was the bathroom stall, whether it was a quick bump in my car or a couple bumps or whatever it was. And then by the time I got to the end of the day, I was like, wow, I'm exhausted. How do I get myself to go to sleep? And then it was a muscle relaxer. It was a, uh, and a Xanax or something like that, that, uh, would help kind of slow my engines down and get me to go back to sleep. And then I would wake up and it was the same thing every single day. So my drug of choice was not necessarily one thing over the other, it was kind of everything throughout the day. I had my schedule worked out around my drug use. And if I knew that something was going to be happening where I couldn't be using drugs, then I wouldn't do that thing. Um, so for me, it was kind of just that tough process and bringing it back to my brother. Um, when everything shut down, I went and saw the drug counselor and I lied pretty much about everything. I was like, I've used cocaine a couple of times and I took a Xanax like a month ago and I haven't stayed using it. You know, I still smoke three or four times a week and, you know, I'll drink once or twice. And I lied about everything and he pretty much read me like a book. He knew I was lying and he just told me straight to my face. He was like, there's nothing I can do for you anymore. The only way that you can get better from this disease and these problems that you have is you need to go away and you need to go away for quite some time. Like you need to get away from this because this area, this lifestyle, these people that, you know, not that they're bad people or bad friends, but really just connections for drugs. And even those people weren't really bad people. I'll never say anyone's necessarily a bad person. It was just that I was in control of myself and the control that I had over myself wasn't over myself because the drugs and alcohol had control over me. I knew that I was susceptible to doing them whenever I could, because that's really what 
gave me energy and gave me life. It was just looking for the next best high. And so when he told me that my mom and I actually drove around to a couple different rehab facilities in the area. And when we were looking at them, um, I was sitting in the back of the car driving to another one, another place to check it out. And my mom turned around and was like, just so you know, my younger brother, um, who this is the part that kind of broke me down is like, I see myself as the older brother, you know, I guess there's always toxic masculinity and all that stuff going on these days, but I didn't see it as one of those. And I still don't, I see if you're the man, you're kind of the protector and the security. And especially if you're the older brother, I should be my younger brother's keeper. If he needs something, I should be able to offer that to him, not the other way around. And it's always one of those things that kind of chokes me up a little bit when, she turned around. She was like, just so you know, uh, we know this is going to be expensive. We know it's going to cost some money to send you away for some time. Jonathan, I, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to use his name, but Jonathan's my younger brother. And just like I talk about my mom, you know, he's my younger brother and he's definitely my keeper in this situation has offered to empty his bank account and use his tax return to pay for whatever it might be, your apartment, your car payments, your insurance, and to help support you getting into rehab, whatever it is that he can do, he's willing to pay every penny to do that. And that's when I put my hand in my, or my head in my hands and I just started crying. And I was like, mom, wherever you need to send me, as long as you need to send me there, just get me out of here, please. Because that should not be a situation that he should ever have to be in. And that's the moment that spoke to me. So I can kind of attribute him a little bit, if not a lot of it, to being one of my saviors in this situation, because he, did what he needed to do to help get me away and save my life. And when he did that, that's the moment that I knew I needed to go away because I should have never as the older brother put him in that situation where he needed to offer that. And by putting him in that situation, I felt like I let him down a lot and not just let him down, but let my whole family and all my friends down the people that kind of thought highly of me and expected more of me. Those are the people that truly have this standard of me. And I've given them this standard to hold me to, but there was always that dark secret going on behind the scenes. And I couldn't hold myself to the standard that other people held me to. And going back to it, that's what the fourth and fifth step really showed me. But yes, when my brother offered me all that money to take care of me, that's when I was like, I need to go. And that's the moment that I decided it was the best thing for me to move forward was go to rehab. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's important to highlight like the value of just, the little things that we can do to support one another, be it friends or family, things that we say make a big difference. And sometimes it uh, impacts like a lifetime worth of change. Like for how pivotal that little moment is, it's uh, very worthwhile to, to say what's on your mind, even in the heat of moments. Like sometimes it's just we don't realize how much influence we have on another person. And uh, I'm a big advocate of just open communication, like tell tell people that you care about them, tell them how much they mean to you, tell them how to what degree you're willing to support them, because if they don't hear it, they might not realize it, it might not resonate um, to kind of bring things a bit more positive, because I can imagine it's pretty tough for you to talk about this stuff. But like you get through all of these things and you're in a situation where you're able to just crush out some work and kind of work with some athletes, like what's your experience been like the last like couple months as we get into like the, the fall months and stuff, like what's life like these days? Uh, life is pretty good. Like I said, I mentioned in the first episode or actually before we even started the episode, my daily just kind of I'll stay up later 
doing uh playing little video games that's kind of my escapes uh fortnite's big for me um but studying late at night like i'll say like i said i stay up till one or two in the morning most nights now um because i realize that after about 10 p.m social media kind of dies down people aren't really posting or saying anything that's worth responding to um so that's kind of that area that late night hours is when i feel like i'm a kind of a late night owl and uh I can get a lot of work done just by being by myself and not really having many distractions. So I'll wake up around like nine 30 to 10 30, go hit my workout, come back at noon, kind of eat some food and then get started on some studying and some chores, you know, walking the dogs, whatever it is, taking care of them. Uh, my grandma has a couple horses and I'll help out with that because our grandma, my grandma lives here. Um, and so I'll help out with all those things when I can um, do my studying during the day. And then come nighttime, there's usually a sporting event that's on for me that I'll distract myself and go watch that or do something or watch what, uh, one of my shows with my mom and my stepdad and kind of just get some family time in and that's important. And then I'll go back into my room and do my nighttime reading for whatever it is that I'm interested in reading at the time or do some more studying and kind of take that nighttime break too and play a little bit of video games and that's kind of what my Monday through Friday looks like. And then Friday afternoons, I head back into town into Flyer Mound where I'm from. And I'll stay with my friends for the weekend. So I get that socialization. You know, I have my family time during the week, have my friend time during the weekends. And then I started just had a guy reach out and he was like, I'm looking for a soccer trainer in the area. And his understanding of me was actually that I was just a speed and agility and strength and conditioning coach. Um, but I let him know, like he wasn't aware that I actually played soccer my whole life. And so I told him, I was like, I'd love to train your son because, you know, that's, that's my thing. Like I actually coached soccer up in Arkansas for a six month stint, um, with one of the sporting Arkansas teams. I was working on the Academy there and they're a branch off of sporting Kansas city. So that was a great experience for me up there to kind of work with a branch of a professional club. And like I said, just get that experience and learn how to coach myself. So when I took that over, you know, I started off with one athlete and he suggested it to someone else on his team. And then two guys rolled in and then all of a sudden there was a girl on one of the teams that the dad coached and she was interested. So I got her on and it's just kind of spiraled from there to where pretty much each week I'll have one more athlete reach out to me and one more soccer player who their parents are just like, I'm interested in getting that next step for my son or daughter or whatever it is. And so I've been doing it for about, coming up on three months now again uh since i restarted and now i'm sitting at the point where i've got about nine athletes that i work with pretty consistently on weekends usually friday nights and then on sunday afternoons those are my times where i'll knock those sessions out um it's a good place for me to be you know it's not too much of a distraction i'm not doing it during the week um, which allows me to have that school time because i need to be focused on that um and then even this thanksgiving on Thanksgiving break, uh, the club that I work with most of their athletes and most of their players or most of my players have come from, they reached out to me and they were like, would you like to run a speed and agility and soccer skills camp? And I was like, I'd love to. So we're going to run a camp and our goal is to have about 30 athletes there and then kind of piggyback that into, you know, at the end of each day, just be like, if you're interested in working with me and continuing to work with me since I'll be running the camp, you know, find me, get my number, get my email, contact me. And hopefully after that, I'll have about 15 or 20 athletes that consistently want to work with me on Fridays and Sundays, and then probably even start off some Saturday morning stuff since we'll be in the off season for soccer season coming up uh, halfway through November, I guess right about now. Um, my goal is to pick that up and get back up to 15 or 20 athletes. And, you know, it's just one of those things that I mentioned in the first episode. It's one day at a time. 
And one of my favorite business quotes that I heard, I'm going to butcher it, but it's something like, if you think small, you'll get bigger than you'll ever imagine. But if you think too big, you'll always stay small. And for me, that was kind of what held me back is when I was the head trainer at my facility. And then even when I was running my own training business, I kept thinking as big as I could, I was like, how do I get to work with this entire league? How do I get to this next opportunity? That's going to give me a hundred or 200 athletes because the goal wasn't always necessarily what I can do for the athletes that I was working with. It was more of that's going to be where the big bucks come in. And that was kind of like at the front runner of my mind. And that was my primary focus. I wasn't focused on coaching or training. I was more focused on how do I increase the income. Um, and from that point forward, now that I'm in this point and completely sober, I realized that it's just work with the kids that I have and try to get next one more kid the next week. And if I don't, so be it. But word of mouth is really how a lot of my coaching is traveling right now. It's just one of the kids goes out and excels one week and they just have a great game. And the parents are like, wow, so-and-so played really well today. How, wh where did that come from? And they're like, well, I'm working with Trevor Costello. He's a soccer skills coach and he works a lot with their movement and their abilities to move and control their body. And that's why my son or daughter is playing a lot better. You know, he's been working with them or she's been working with him for about three weeks now. And we see a huge difference. And then the parents are like, well, I see a huge difference too. Now I want to get involved because I want my son or daughter to play at that level and kind of excel their skills. And so word of mouth has been huge for me. Obviously I'll try and post some videos on Instagram or Facebook, but honestly I haven't had much success with that, with getting my name out there and showing that I'm doing a whole lot but it's just been word of mouth, you know, parents and kids going out there and showing their skills. And when they show their skills, one other parent reaches out and the parent that connected me with them will reach out and be like, Hey, so-and-so is going to reach out to you. They're interested in their daughter or son, and this is their age. And this is the team they play for. And they'd like to work with you on weekends when you're in town. And all the parents actually know about my story and are friends with me on Facebook. And they've commented on it after sessions with me, they'll be like, I saw your story and I heard your speech. And that was absolutely incredible. It was amazing. I showed it to my son or daughter who's in high school and they loved it as well. And it's great to hear that feedback and see that I'm kind of having that impact that I'd like to have and feed into that to where, you know, I might not see, how it actually affects them, but maybe five or six years from now, whatever it is that they're doing in life, they can look back and say, you know, who really helped change my perspective on things was Trevor, coach Trevor, coach Costello, whatever they want to call me or whatever they go by. And that's when I'll see the long-term impact. It's kind of one of those things. It's like an investment, you know, it's not a short-term investment to work with some kids and it's not a short-term payout. The long-term payout, not necessarily even financially is, I mean, but it does, you know, there is a little bit of financial because it is a business for me. Um, more and more kids over time will want to work with me. And that's where I can kind of get into that comfortable position lifestyle wise of working and doing what I need to, to get the income to basically keep the roof over my head and pay some bills and keep food in my stomach and eventually take care of the family that I'd like to have in the future. Um, but it's just that word of mouth, that kind of travel, but it's just the long-term payout is what kind of effect and impact am I going to have on these kids? Cause that's what I want to see the most. And like I mentioned back in the day, it used to be, how can I get the most kids possible to increase my finances? And now it's less and less about the finances, even though that's an aspect. The biggest thing for me is impact and effect and how I'm, how I'm creating an environment for them to succeed in. And like I said, I mean, even now it's just like, I'm about to run a Thanksgiving day camp and we're goal. Our goal is to get about 30 kids signed up. And they told me they dropped the link on the first day and had five kids sign up and they were none of the kids that I've already worked with. So all the kids that I worked with already are going to sign up as well. 
And then the rest of the teams hopefully follow suit and are like, let's do that during Thanksgiving break. Cause we have the time to do that. And for whatever reason, we'd like to work out with this guy and then hopefully go from there where more parents and more kids are interested in sticking with me long-term, even if I'm only coming into town on weekends and they want to see me so I can kind of create more business opportunities for myself. But that's, you know, business is business. Obviously this is kind of my lifestyle and how I want to make ends meet, but it's, it's bigger than that for me. It's what kind of the impact and the effect. And I know I've mentioned that a couple of times, but that's the biggest part for me is how can I affect these kids' lifestyles, not just on the soccer field, not just in other sports that they're playing, but how I develop them as a human and into the men and women that they'd like to see themselves become one day, or maybe they don't even know what they'd like to become one day, but use the principles and the rules that I and share my values and beliefs and expand on that and create their own not necessarily to mimic me entirely, but mimicking is kind of one of those cool things where you'll see kids talk like you, walk like you, carry themselves like you, but they're adding their own spice to it. There is always that uniqueness to the individual who's going to do things their own way and copy you in some ways. And that's the point of coaching and training. And that's where I find the most fulfillment and purpose, like I've mentioned a couple of times through what I do. Everything that you just said is exactly what's going to get you shout outs on people's podcasts in the next decade. Like, you know how many times we brought up Kyle Dobbs? People are going to bring yeah. your name up one day. And it's whether it be at their wedding when they talk about that coach that helped them through their high school years, or whether it be when you inspire somebody else to be a coach one day. Like, I can tell you for a fact, like, you're doing a lot of things right. And it's so cool to watch from my perspective to to tell you for a fact how much my high school coaches influenced me and I never did sport at a very competitive level and so that tells you how little like context you have to make in somebody's life like impact is life-changing and so it's so cool to to hear that word of mouth is working for you because truly that's like the best marketing that you can do just like focusing on like your one-on-one interactions like something that uh, stands out to me especially in the year 2020 is like treating every single person that you interact with as though they're the only person in your world in that moment like <laughs> that one client that you have on a day or maybe you have five clients in a day or whatever it may be treating each one of them as though they're the only client that you have that's ready to hire you because People feel that. People sense that. And um, something that I sense in you is is you have a pretty good judge of character. Like you've had to, because you do present yourself as someone that looks older than what you are, um, you've been in through a lot of like different life experiences that a lot of people your age wouldn't have been through. I, I can tell you that for a fact. Um, and my guess, my gander here is that like, you're probably pretty good at judging people's character in a short amount of time. Um, and I know that I'm just assuming it, but what what stands out to you most when you're meeting somebody? Like, What are the qualities that make you think, okay, like this person's going to be invited into my, my room, as it were, or like this person is someone that I want to keep keep around? Like, How do you sort of develop your, your friendships moving forward or develop who you want to be surrounded by? Um, just like you mentioned, obviously, uh, how many shout outs we've given to Kyle. So I'm going to give him another one on this one. Um, kind of what happens with me is, and I've got this, this one girl specifically who obviously not going to mention her name when I work with her and I'll ask her questions. The biggest change that I've seen with her is that she's starting to answer the questions and she's starting to show a little bit of an interest. But when I first worked with her and I asked her a question, even if it was as simple as a yes or no, 
she would just kind of give me a shrug and kind of give me that I don't know, or I don't, I'm not really interested. And it seems like that. And so one of the things that I actually did a week ago was I talked to her mom and I was like, so the biggest thing for me is I don't know how to get to her right now. So how I'm going to get to her is I need her to either verbally tell me, but I know she doesn't like talking. She says she likes working with me and she tells her mom that, you know, she loves coming out to my sessions. But I was like, I need to understand her goals. And from that perspective, it kind of changes things, you know, with Kyle and with Matt and coach Sam and the whole compound performance group the thing that they do first is that disc assessment and it kind of allows me to understand things from their perspective. And I think that's the biggest thing is cause like you might see someone, like I said, like, or like you said, you know, being able to judge their character and see that, you know, I could just read them. Like they might not be that interested and just choose to not work with them, but I don't want to be at that point. Like I want to work with as much people as I can and influence as much people as I can. And the best way that I've learned to do that is what, Kyle has taught me is he's like, you need to understand things from their perspective. And then when I understand it from their perspective, I can kind of cater what I'm doing and the processes that I'm creating for that person to help them succeed. When I'm first working with someone and I realize that they're not having much of my, my style, my concepts and the things that I do to help achieve goals isn't working. That doesn't mean I'm a bad coach. That doesn't mean that it's an ineffective style or an ineffective concept to try and use. It just means it might be ineffective for that individual. And especially for me working in group sessions, it's kind of difficult because it's not based necessarily on the individual. It's based on how the whole group will succeed. And for me, one of those things is even in my girls group, I told the parents, you know, they're my youngest group and they're usually about 10 years old. And working with them, you know, obviously soccer skills is my goal, but I told them, I was like, for the next two or three weeks, we're just going to work on movement. We're going to work on speed. We're going to work on transitioning from side to side, uh, that change of direction aspect. We're going to work on jumping and creating power. And then we'll start to slowly get back to the soccer ball. And I noticed a week ago, because this particular girl wrote down on paper that her biggest goal was to get faster and to move her body better. And so I realized that instead of going for the soccer touches and the soccer control, that'll come with time. But at her particular age, she doesn't have none of them are really at that sensory motor level of development where they know what they need to be doing with their bodies from a subconscious level. They have to think about processes a lot more. So let's get them to that point of subconscious control where when I ask them to move a certain way, they just do it. And so for me, like I can judge the character like we were talking about and like we're kind of mentioning right here, but it's their character is really no reflection of me. It's more a reflection of themselves and it's a reflection of how I need to work with them and how I need to work with the parents. So when I talk to the parents too, I've started to ask them, I'm like, I can ask your goals, but let's try and make sure your goals are the same as your kids. Cause if your son or daughter doesn't have the same goals in mind as you, it doesn't matter. You're going to drive them away from it. And I say that with complete respect and all my parents that I work with have seen that as a sign of respect. They're like, I get that. My goal as a parent might be to get my kid to score more goals, but my kid might want to just get faster. And in turn, they're playing that forward position for soccer. They get faster and all of a sudden they accomplish the parents' goals as well, which is to score more goals in soccer. So it's a literal goal in that sense. Um, but we need to break it down to whatever that party as a collective, the parent son relation or parent child relationship is going to intertwine and work with me as the coach. And so I need to understand that my girls session now, cause they're my younger group. And then my, meanwhile, my boys are usually 12 to 13. I have to work on different things with them. When originally, when I started out, I was working on the same exact things 
and there wasn't much turnover in what was being worked on in those group sessions. And now there's a little bit of adaptation, a little bit of change and a little bit of a change in style from my own coaching perspective of things I need to do to not just understand and judge their character necessarily, but understand their character and what drives them. Like we mentioned a little bit earlier, like I know my why, I know what drives me. I know my purpose and what fulfills me in this life, but I need to understand all those things from their perspective. That way I don't change their character in any sense, but I help kind of maximize the character traits that they're trying to maximize in themselves. And when I get to that point, that's where we see success start to untangle itself where it's like things might be confusing or not understood or not really to that point of maximizing the results. And we can slowly move to that direction of maximizing the results with each session and each time that I get together with these kids and train them. But it needs to be that perspective of what Kyle taught me, which is ask them questions. And then another one Kyle taught me is when they ask a question and they're confused about something or they need to learn something from a deeper, deeper understanding, learn to ask better questions so that you can get better answers and more specific answers to gear my training and my sessions towards what they need and want. And really it's what they want. Then from my perspective as a coach and trainer, I need to show them what they need to get to a point where they can attain what they want. And I need to also cater the concepts and style that I use to fit their wants. Like if they don't want to be doing something, I need to cut it during one of my sessions. And you had a great post on this the other day. You're like, if I talk to my client and they say they hate this exercise, guess what exercise we're never going to do anymore because that's how you make it geared towards the individual. And obviously with me, it's a little different because I work in bigger groups. I need to gear it towards where everyone in the session is interested in what we're doing and enjoys what we're doing. So there's something, there's one drill specifically where it's shuffle, shuffle, break, and the kids don't enjoy that. So I need to find a better way to get them to change direction and understand how to control their body as they move side to side and then break into a sprint. And I just need to change the concept that I use and whether it's throwing that drill completely away or just coming back to it at a later date to where they'll enjoy it more and they feel like it's better for them. I need to change myself and adjust because once I understand their character and what drives them and their goals, which is again, that thing that Kyle taught me the most or not the most, but he's taught me a lot, obviously. But one of those things that I find important when I'm first starting to work with someone and working with their parents, because it is not just, a client relationship that I have with the athletes, you have to understand the child, the parent, and then intertwine it with the coach. So it's kind of like a triangle relationship going on with me. And then it's even bigger than that to whatever shape you want to draw it into, because I've got three or four kids in each session. And then some sessions, only one kid. So it's easier and it's a more linear relationship in that sense. But the bigger the group, the more I have to cater towards the entire audience, not just one person. So it's a little more challenging in that perspective, but as you and I are the same way in that sense, we love a good challenge. And so the more challenging it is for me, the more growth and experience I believe I get from it and the more knowledge I create for myself and not only for myself, but for them and the parents for how they need to be doing things and how it's going to work for them to attain those goals that they want to attain. Holy crap. You nailed it. Like that was perfect. Um, something that I want to like get even more specific with is um, just like, social dynamics like let's use the compound performance group as an example like everybody from quarter three if you're describing people what are the things that you describe about them first like what stands out to you most about a person's character um for me it's that's kind of an open-ended question so i love it in that sense 
but it's really just, it depends on each person. Uh, my, my good friend actually always tells me, she's just like, you know, I, that's, I've learned something from you. She's just like, every time I ask you a question, the answer is always, it depends. And I'll start with that because I don't want her to think things are always so clear. It's not always like when you're taking a test in school and someone asks you a question, it's A, B, C, or D. What I tell people is I, I think it was an Einstein quote actually is where he's like, knowledge is everything you have left after you forget whatever they taught you in school. And for me, I think the beauty of asking a question is not just knowing whether it's A, B, C, or D, but understanding how you can change that question to where A becomes the answer and how you can change the question to where B becomes the answer. So like I mentioned earlier, you know, asking better questions to get better answers. And for me with each person, when I come across them and, you know, in the Q3 mentorship and every mentorship they do, everyone posts their little bio. And when you read those bios, you get to see things from their perspective because it's, it's uninterrupted. You're not talking with someone. So it's not like a conversation in that sense. You're just, it's as if we're in a podcast and one person's literally just telling me about them. So I see kind of their past, their experience, and then their strength and their hope kind of their strengths are whatever they want to highlight. And then their hope is what they hope to get from the compound mentorship which is, you know, how they want to change themselves, how they want to see themselves change and what they want to take from it. And with each person, it's a little bit different. Every time the, the principles are pretty much the same. You know, I've got experience in coaching. My strength is that I'm really good at coaching this way. And then my hope is to get better at coaching other ways or, you know, how I connect with my clients or how I connect with my athletes or whatever it might be. It's always different for each person. But I think that's what kind of builds that experience that you get with each individual. And for you and me, it was one of those just like, we both got reposted on Kyle's story one day and I followed you and we and you and me just started messaging immediately. And we started, started talking about the AMRAP program. And I realized that you and I both have same goals from our own goals, what we wanted to accomplish with the AMRAP program, how fast we wanted to get, how much we wanted to accomplish, how strong we were, how strong we wanted to become. And I realized that I resonated with you in a lot of those areas. And that's what kind of built that com competition, that competitive nature that you and I built with just that, that, two mile, three mile, four mile bike competition. And obviously I think you won that for now, you know, I'm going to catch you here in the future. Don't worry about it. Um, but it was, it was fun in that sense. And I realized that that's how I'm going to connect with you, but for someone else, it might be a bench press competition, you know, and that translates to life too. It might just be a comp a, a little bit of a competition, not necessarily the biggest one, but a competition of how much you want to learn, how much you, how much more you want to read than I do, or I want to read this and you want to read this, but how can we, use what we're reading and what we're learning and the things that we do in our everyday life to move forward and both accomplish our goals. So it's a competition in that sense, but the person you're really competing with is yourself. So when I'm seeing what other people are writing in their bios and stuff like that in the mentorship, it's not necessarily me against you. It's me against me, but how can I use you as a reflection of what you're doing on myself? Like how can I learn from you? How can I take what you're doing and gear that specifically towards myself, if that makes sense. And with each person, like I said, the individual is always going to be unique in that sense. And it's just cool to see what other people's goals and perspectives might be on what they've been doing. And then choose those people that are really specific towards your goals and kind of put them in that echo chamber, but also kind of that the echo chamber, the bigger it gets, the more perspectives you get. And life's always going to be kind of an echo chamber in the sense of you're going to find the people that are you're biased towards. Cause you're like, I really like that person. 
And so that's fine in that sense, but more towards the room metaphor, it's who can I add to my room to give me more of what I'm looking for, if that makes sense. And for me, there's the always expanding the room, not even necessarily switching the room up, but making sure there's room for everyone to always be added. And then some people might like leave the room at some point in your life, but it's not a knock on them. It's not a knock on you. It's not like you were had a fallout or a break off or something like that. That was super angry or geared towards resentment. It's just more like they moved in a different direction. And when other people move in different directions, it's always great to have those connections with people and know like, I'm still solid in my belief that they're a great person from their character and they just might have different goals than I do. So it's not like I have to like disassociate with them entirely. It's I'll still be associated, but I'm moving forward with other people in my room and they might have other people in their room or they just might be on the other side of your room um, a little bit, if that makes sense. Um, so when I'm judging character, there's really nothing that I'm looking for necessarily because I'm looking at the individual but I'm looking to see what their goals are, what their experience is, what their strength is and what their hope is. And then that's how I know how to adapt myself a little bit to work with that person or to understand that person. So I, it's one of those I learned from rehab actually is when you share your story, share your experience, whether it's negative or positive, share your strength, which is also just basically like how you see yourself and what your advantages are. So that way I can also see not only what your advantages are and your strengths, but I can see your weaknesses and I see you don't want to talk about certain things. So if I'm stronger in those areas, I can kind of give that feedback and that advice to you. And if I also realize that your strengths are some of my weaknesses, I can piggyback off of that. And then when I hear your hope, that's the final one experience, strength and hope. When I hear your hope, if your hope aligns with mine and my goals, then that's where we can really work together. If your hope is even different how can I use you to help me achieve my goals and use what my experience and strength is to help you move towards uh, accomplishing your goals? Well, that's like the perfect summary for it. And I liked how you took that question because it gives me perspective. It just holds true to everything that you said. Everybody kind of has the power to elevate each other. And it's just about being open to kind of seeing our differences and our trajectories and where we can kind of lean on somebody else's trajectory to help our own. Um, I just have to fix a glitch here in my, uh, feed here. All good. All right. So back on track, it's, uh, just crazy how much we can learn from the people that we surround ourselves with and to kind of like segue us back in to the trajectory of this episode here, because I've certainly gained a lot of value from like this conversation and like, that's obviously why you're on the show. But um, I'm going to pose a challenge for you, something that you're going to share with the audience, and it's going to be a challenge of the day. Um, but I want you to draw from your experience something that would potentially um, have the greatest impact for the average listener of this podcast, something that you think might be kind of tough for people to do, but uh, could facilitate the best outcome. So essentially, you're just going to frame it like this. You're just going to be like your challenge for the day is and just like let them have it. Okay. Uh, let's see if I can do that off the top of my head. Um, I'm one of those people that likes kind of drawing uh, my goal, my outline, and then finding coming up with my final drafts. So this is a little bit of a challenge for myself. Um, for me, it would just be uh, as weird as that might sound. I'm going to piggyback off of what I learned in rehab. Um, for me, it would be my challenge is write down that one person or those two people, or even if it's 50 people, 50 people can't, you know, that happens in life. Um, 
find someone that you're like resentful towards or someone that you feel a negative sort of thought process to. Um, and it doesn't have to be that strong. It can just be like, I don't really like the way this person does something and try to find the person that, you know, is that way for you. And even write down what your resentments are, figure out what you're upset at them for, figure out why you're upset at why they do something. And then on the backside of the paper, it doesn't have to be the backside. Um, talk about your own selfishness and things you might've done in that relationship. And even if it's someone you don't even know, talk about why you feel that way. Like, how is it selfish? Like, are they upsetting you because that's something you've done in the past, which is something I saw a lot with myself is I realized that I was upset with people because they were doing things that I'd done with my past. And I found out that I wasn't happy with them because I wasn't happy with myself doing those things or currently doing those things. If I'm not happy with someone, it's because I do those things more often than not. And I'm just mad that they're a lot like me. And that's what I learned when I was looking at my resentment. So my challenge of the day would just be pretty much find someone and it doesn't even have to be someone. It can be something. It can be your job. It can be your university. It can be anything. It can be TV or football, a football team, a soccer team, something that you're upset with, figure out why you're upset with them and then figure out the selfishness inside of yourself, why you're actually upset with them and what you can do from your perspective to change how you feel about that person. And I think that's going to help provide a lot of growth is just figuring out why you're upset at the person or the thing and then figure out or what you're upset about and then figure out why you're upset. And then when you figure out why you're upset, you'll figure out how to change why you're upset to being why you're actually okay with it. And then you'll feel kind of that resentment subside a little bit. So that's my challenge of the day is just figure out that one person or that one thing that kind of makes you change how you think and feel throughout the day. If you think about them or you're around them or you're around that person or thing, and then figure out what you can do from your perspective to change that kind of thought process and that mindset. And that's going to, I think really help people out kind of that fourth and fifth step style from rehab. And that's why I said, like, even if you're not an addict, like I would recommend that kind of thing happening for every single person. So definitely, that's my challenge of the day. Um, if you could give one piece of advice to someone on how to live their life to the fullest in the most authentic way, what would that piece of advice be? Take and give, take and give, take from someone or something or some experience that you've had and give advice and feedback to someone else. Because like I mentioned earlier, it's just, it's a chain reaction. Um, so think of things as a take and give relationship or give and take, nothing has to come first. If you're taking from someone like I take from Kyle and I take from you and I take from several other coaches that I've come along with and the mentorship and networked with via social media and try to give back. And after you give back, go take some more from someone else and then give it back, you know, find that next thing that can help you level up and then in turn help someone else level up. So my best piece of advice would just be like take and give, like I mentioned in the spirituality books that I've read, the one thing that remains a true across every single one of them is that man is here to help other man. And obviously a woman is help, here to help other woman, whatever it is. I'm not going to be too politically incorrect in that, but it's just, that's one of the lines that spoke to me in one of the books is just man is here to help other man. And that's what I've noticed across the board. So think of life as a take and give relationship. Don't take something and then hold it in and not give it away or don't give something and then not try to take from someone else because other people and other experiences and other things 
can teach you a whole lot in the moment you're not trying to expand your knowledge and what you know is the moment that you're going to start becoming idle and when you're idle you're really just going backwards because your ceiling of what you can become is always going to raise but if you're not taking those steps to keep raising and meet that ceiling then you're just staying right where you are and as the ceiling travels farther away from you you're just actually taking steps backwards even if you're in idle position so take and give that's my best piece of advice that's perfect so with that, I'd like to thank you so much for joining me for two episodes in a row on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime, man. I love how I love being here. I love that you have me and everything like that. And hope you have a great rest of the day and anyone who's listening can uh, take something from this. So perfect.